Arise. The Honorable, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. For years, oh years, oh years, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state in this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Chris Dillon. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, for presiding with me today uh, is to my right is Judge Valerie Zachary. To my left is Judge Hunter Murphy. We have two cases on the calendar today. The first one is State v. Evans Springs Owens. And so we're ready to hear from the appellants. And just let us know how y'all want to divide your time and if you want to reserve any time. And I'll keep your time up here. and We'll, we'll keep it pretty close, but I'll give you a warning when you get close to the, to the end. So if you're ready to proceed, go ahead. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Warren Henson. Uh, I would like to sp I plan to speak for about 15 minutes and reserve the remaining 15 minutes, including five minutes of rebuttal to uh, co-counsel, Ms. Burnett. Okay, so I'll, I'll let you know when you get up close to your 15 minutes, and then you'll speak for 10 and then have five. Okay, that's fine. So it's about Thank you, Judge. Perfect. Go ahead. As the state emphasized in its closing argument at trial, no doubt by now you have figured out that this case starts with, rests on, and ends with Jamal Robinson. There's no hiding that. He's the only witness, the prosecution argued. The state argued that Jamal was not only a material witness in the case, but he was the only surviving witness that was able to relay to a jury what actually happened on the day in question. Can you tell me, who do you represent? James Evans. So you represent Mr. Evans, okay. Yes. Jamal's testimony was essential to the state's case. And they argue that Jamal was credible, that he was real with the jury, that he got no special treatment. He was the only witness to be believed. I, I, I have a quick question for you. Was he ever really presented as a disinterested witness where, you know, where they're saying, you know, he's the victim of an, basically an attempted murder? Uh, the jury was never informed one way or the other whether he was interest whether he was you know he was presented as an impartial witness that was the as far as the jury knew mm -hmm. that he was there just to get justice but little did the jury know that he had five pending trafficking charges in gaston county a county in which a significant and violent portion of this of these crimes occurred and that there was an incentive for his testimony in the form of a potential or of a benefit of substantial assistance from the sentencing judge in Gaston County. But the jury did hear that he was there at the at where the shooting took place. He was there to sell drugs. They did hear that part, why he was there. They were informed that this was part of a, of a heroin deal okay. in Mecklenburg County. But the jury, in determining the only witness's credibility, did not know, was kept in the dark about, well, does Jamal have anything to gain from this testimony? Is there any Thing we should know about besides the Mecklenburg charges. besides the Mecklenburg charges which they knew about but the serious source of bias the extraordinary source of bias from this case came from the incentive that he would could, that he got 
in his own pending case in Gaston County. And that bias is derived independently of any deal from the state. It's not state-based bias. So it's your contention that in any case in which any witness um, may possibly get the substantial assistance um, bit off the grid benefit, um, it needs to be disclosed to the jury, and uh, or or at least the defendant's um, counsel needs to be able to cross-examine the witness about that. Yeah. So I think when you read Bowman, are you read? Well, first off, we contended that Davis versus Alaska is the is the case that allows for cross-examination to show bias that should have been allowed uh, in this case. And Bowman cites bias. I mean, cites Davis. Uh, the other North Carolina Supreme Court cases prevent uh, that cites Davis saying you should be allowed to cross-examine in depending charges when there is bias. Well, let, let's let's start. Okay, so if if a, if a witness is on the stand and there's a pending charge somewhere in the world against this person, is that in of itself under the current case law fair game, or do you have to show something more? I think the case law says if there's bias. No, you have to show by, I mean, it's just the mere fact that, I'm, 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 not, I'm not talking about your case, I'm just yeah. saying the mere fact that there's a pending charge against a witness somewhere in the world, is that by itself enough to where the defense, the defendant's attorney should be allowed to ask questions about that? Or do you have to show something more? I think you have to show something more, and I think that's based on Bowman. Bowman says the general rule is no inquiry into pending charges. An exception to this general rule is when there is bias to be, you know, conveyed or revealed, uh, and that can be bias. Or so what was there in this case that showed more than just the mere fact that there were pending charges in Gaston County that, that should have allowed y'all? Well, I think the fact, and it's unique to trafficking charges because of the substantial assistance benefit incentive that is available to, to the defendant. And in this case, you had a defendant who was experienced in the criminal justice system, who was advised by counsel throughout his testimony at this trial, who then also represented him in Gaston County, arguing that, hey, his substantial, he should get substantial assistance because he got those two first-degree murder convictions in Mecklenburg County. And he actually got, um, he, he got the benefit of that substantial assistance. He got an extraordinary benefit. He, all of his, he, he pled guilty to one of those count, five counts of trafficking, got a suspended probationary sentence, and $350,000 in fines waived. He was looking at decades in prison. But that wasn't done until after the trial. Is that right? That well, it wasn't. I mean, his, his plea just, was entered and, after the trial. And I'm not, ta I'm not speaking to your MAR that you filed because that's a different issue. But just on the day of trial, what did the judge know that – how did the judge err not allowing it? I mean, what was presented? Because the judge didn't know about this, this settlement in Gaston County when he ruled. He or she ruled. I don't know who the judge was. I, I guess, when, when well, he they, knew that, they knew that there were pending charges in Gaston County. That's not enough, though. The fact that you have pending charges isn't enough. So what you, you just you conceded that. So what right. was it? What well, they presented testimony. The state presented testimony. And, and Jamal Robinson testified during this voir dire hearing into this very matter about whether they can cross-examine about the Gaston County charges, and Jamal testified during that hearing that he was aware of substantial assistance. He was familiar with that concept. That alone indicates that there, he is aware of an incentive that could bias, or at least the jury could perceive, 
that this would bias or influence his testimony. Okay, so does the case law say this? I'm a witness. There's a pending charge against me somewhere in the world, and you get me to say, I haven't talked. I haven't talked to any prosecutor about this, but I hope that if I uh, testify in this case, I might be given a break. Is that enough to show to to show bias to where it should be allowed in? If that's what I say during voir dire, if the defendant merely says, I haven't talked to anybody, but you know, I, I would like to think that maybe I'd get a break. Yeah, I, I hope. I would be hopeful that I get a break. I won't tell the truth, but I hope we get a break. Is that enough to, to get – is that enough? Maybe. I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. And I think when you have – maybe it's the nature of the charge, or maybe it's the fact that, you know, that person is represented by counsel who is going to also represent them and advise them and, and their plea. But I think the issue is – you know, we're, we, we tell juries every trial, you're the sole judges of the credibility of these witnesses. You can believe all, some, or none of their testimony. And in doing that, consider whether they're impartial, whether they have any bias. And so I think to give meaning to that instruction, if a witness says, yeah, you know, I expect to get something out of my testimony, that's a bias. And they should be able to weigh that in making their assessment of the case. to. But, but, but that's not what happened here, is it? I mean, uh, Jamal Robinson never said, yeah, I expect to get something out of my testimony. Well, he testified that he was aware of the concept of substantial assistance. But he didn't say he expected. Uh, he did, I'm just commenting no, on he what didn't. you he didn't. said. And, but what we know is, and, and maybe that's what he would have testified to in front of the jury under other cross-examination. But Prevet says, just because he held a voir dire hearing on this, and Jamal may have said that just in voir dire, that's not enough. That doesn't cure the issue of not getting sufficient cross-examination in front of the jury. Let the jury know that he's aware of this concept. And maybe there's cross-examination into, well, do you expect to get substantial assistance? And let him answer the question and let the jury decide do they believe him or not. But the jury had no opportunity to make that decision because they were totally kept in the dark about it. And when he's the only witness, they could not have prosecuted this Mecklenburg County case without Jamal Robinson. And when he has that significant level of charges and the incentive in exchange for his testimony that he could gain when it came time for his own sentencing, the judge should have permitted the attorneys to cross-examine him about that. So are you saying the case law does not require that there was actually some discussion with the prosecutor in question or anything? I think, if you, I think Bowen speaks to a way of showing bias. And that would be if the prosecutors talked to each other. If they talked to each other. But, that, that, that's, but if, not, that's not the hard – you're saying that's not a hard rule. That's I, just an example. Well, no, I don't think – I think it's just one example. Right, right. Because any, if you have prosecutors who just pick up the phone and call each other and work out a deal, they've, they've worked out a way to get around Bowman. I don't think Bowman is, should be read as so narrowly as to only permit cross-examination and depending charges when there is communications. Because in this case – the, buy, the, the incentive of substantial assistance, it doesn't depend on whether the DAs talk to each other. That is a decision that is solely vested in the sentencing judge. It's a, and so whether the DAs talk about it is almost irrelevant when it comes time to his own sentencing because substantial assistance is just the judge's call. What kind of charges did he avoid in Mecklenburg County for his agreement? Was it just was it trap? Was it trafficking or just heroin? I, I, I don't know if it was drug trafficking charge. I feel like there was an assault. On a I can't. I, was there a drug charge too? Something like. I don't. That? He didn't get charged with any. Well, he wasn't charged. He, he wasn't charged. But I mean, wasn't that part of the agreement? If you he got an immunity agreement in 
I think it was an immunity agreement in Mecklenburg in exchange for his testimony. He wasn't. So he was never charged. So, so I guess my question is, uh, but the jury got to hear that, that he had an They got to hear about Mecklenburg, but they heard nothing about Gaston County. So, so my question is, assuming, assuming it was error, how is it prejudicial if the jury got to hear he's a heroin dealer? So why would it have been like, well, I mean, what difference does it make if they didn't hear about all his heroin? They, they knew he was a heroin dealer, so. Well, I think that in terms of prejudice, the case law indicates between, it really looks at, is this a central witness? And if it's just a peripheral witness, their testimony was cumulative, okay. you know, it wasn't necessary to get the conviction, then it might be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. But in this case, Jamal, it's unquestionable Jamal was central. But why wasn't this evidence cumulative? Because that would have just shown that he was really a drug dealer. I mean, he, they already heard that he was a drug dealer. I, I, I don't know all the charges in Gasson. Were they all drug-related? Yeah, they were just drug trafficking charges. So drug trafficking charges. So they already heard he was a drug dealer. So why wouldn't that have just been cumulative? Because it's not just the mere fact that he's a drug dealer. It's the fact that he is a, an explicit incentive that he could get a major break for his oh, testimony in exchange for his cooperation and testimony in this case. Okay. So are you, is it your contention that Bowman doesn't even apply where it's a, a substantial I, assistance case? I think Bowman... Where it's out of the DA's hands? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think Bowman is a way of showing bias, but Bowman is indicative of a state-based form of bias, where, like in Bowman, there were pending plea negotiations, and was the guy going to, or a girl going to get a deal from the state? Substantial assistance is not based on a deal from the state. It's just the judges call it sentencing. So you don't need communications to establish bias for when it comes to substantial assistance, the incentive of substantial assistance. Let, let me ask this. Is Bowman not that old? Substantial assistance obviously existed at the time of Bowman. When the Supreme Court says, however, where a witness faces pending charges in a separate jurisdiction, than the one he testifies in, which is what we're dealing with here, a defendant must provide supporting documentation. There's no limitation there. Whether I think it creates some type of new objective hurdle to something that's more of a subjective concept with bias, I, I just don't see how we're not bound by that must on 445. Well, I moment. think you have to look to Davis and that's why I think Davis versus Alaska doesn't create a, 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 a limited universe in which pending charges may be inquired into. Bowman is a progeny of Davis, and I think is its own universe where that rule applies, where there is control or undue influence by the state. And so when you have, like in Bowman, pending charges that are being negotiated as part of a plea, it makes sense that you would need to show proof of communications between them to corroborate some sort of state-based bias. But when you have other forms of bias that don't depend on the state, it, I think, would lead to sort of possibly absurd results where you have DA's offices saying, well, let's just pick up the phone and talk to each other, or let's just talk in person, or let's just text the defense attorney so that way we don't talk directly to each other when we're trying to work, work out something. And in our case, it didn't even necessarily need that because, again, this was just 
bias that was based on the incentive of, well, what's the judge going to do when it comes time for my own sentencing? And if I give testimony here, that, might, that will increase my chances of something working out much better for me in Gaston County. You take about, if you want two more minutes, you, you, you can take two more minutes before you eat into her time if you want to. Okay. So I, I think, you know, the, the state's argument is, well, this is not an abuse of discretion because there was a hearing held. They heard testimony. The judge read the case law. You know, they made a, they made a reasoned decision. But an abuse of discretion is, does not mean a mistake of law is beyond appellate correction. And we, I found an NMAA, a Myers case, that talks about when a, 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 even if you have sort of an orderly process, but an erroneous conclusion of law that comes out of it, you can still satisfy an abuse of discretion standard. And in fact, that's the standard that was applied in Bowman, and a new trial was granted in Bowman. So um, the, the trial court's conclusion here that there was no bias uh, that would permit cross-examination of Jamal's pending charges was an erroneous conclusion of law uh, that made it an abuse of discretion. And so um, I will go ahead and just yield the remainder of my time uh, okay. to Ms. Manette. Thank you. And you want to use 10 minutes now, right? That's and, then you'll have, and then you'll have five after that. That's fine. May it please the court, my name is Kelly Minette, and I represent Mr. Springs Owens in his appeal to this court. This case starts with, rests on, and ends with Jamal Robinson. That is what the state told the jury. But the end of this case was not the end for Jamal Robinson. His pending charges still stayed out there in Gaston County, waiting to be resolved. This is far from the situation where a witness has unrelated pending charges in an uninvolved county. Instead here, Jamal Robinson was not the only commonality between these two counties. They shared a common interest in this case and in this crime. Half of this crime occurred in Gaston County. Approximately a third of the state's witnesses came from Gaston County. Both counties' communities were victims. Both held an interest in the outcome of this trial. Davis teaches us that we cannot view aspects of bias in isolation. In Davis, they repeatedly emphasized how one aspect of bias could not be understood by itself. The fact that the, the witness might have been a suspect in the crime itself was insufficient to reveal his bias without also knowing the amount of control the state held over him as a probationer. And it's that intersection of different areas of bias and how they influence each other that is really critical here. Was the, this kind of sub-theory that understand that defendants would, would like to try to get around Bowman and back into the Davis realm, this theory of substantial assistance is different from um, the regular situation where you're just dealing with different um, pending charges. Was that argued by either defendant below? The substantial assistance piece, uh, it, was, okay. it was argued that, um, and that was drawn out during the voir dire, that substantial assistance was a factor on the table. Um, but we have substantial assistance that takes it out of the realm of for the, or, or bias created by the state, which is something that Bowman says. 
before that line about a defendant must provide supporting documentation of discussion, there is a line that says, an exception to this rule is compelled by the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause when defendant seeks to show bias or undue influence by the state. So that is a state-centric inquiry. Is the state inducing this behavior? But there are facts and circumstances that can take this out of state-induced bias and can become witness-centric. So in this situation, we have a witness who had already received immunity for heroin trafficking for the crimes that he committed during this crime. Then there was a material witness order and an arrest and an ankle monitor put on him, an extensive amount of control by the state, showing him how much they can control him. He had very minor pending charges in Mecklenburg County. And I think as Judge Dillon raised earlier, these things were allowed to be inquired about. But you lack a full understanding of the impact of those areas of potential bias without knowing what he holds in the future. Those pending charges in the connected county just waiting to be resolved, for which he faced a substantial potential sentence and substantial um, possible fines. So you can't fully understand how those factors could have influenced him without understanding that other piece, just as in Davis. This was further discussed in Murrell, where they, the discussion about um, how in Murrell there had not been communication between the two, two um, DA's offices Murrell went a step further and said, further, this is unlike Davis, where the, sus the witness was also a potential suspect in the crime. Well, explain to me a little bit about the, I'm still stuck on prejudice. So clearly, if the Gaston County DA had entered into an agreement with this guy and the defense, your, your client wasn't allowed to inquire about it, um, that would have been wrong and would have been error. But why is it prejudicial? If the jury got to hear that he got a bunch of crimes dismissed, because he, if, he, if he cooperates, and he had to still live up to his agreement that the jury knew about. He still had to live up to it. Um, the, the fact that, you know, I, I knew about, the, the jury didn't hear about all the crimes, but they heard about some of them. They already knew, therefore, you, the, the bias was already presented to them. They already knew there was some bias, maybe not to the degree. So what, what was so special about these Gaston County crimes that makes it so much more, uh, that, that makes it, uh, that, that would have made the jury think, you know, he might not be biased just because of these Mecklenburg crimes, but boy, those gas and crimes, that, what, what you got to show me, what was the prejudice involved? So, because I'm not overly familiar with what, what, with the difference in the charges, potential charges in Mecklenburg County, I guess drug, heroin trafficking or heroin something, but I don't know what was in, what was in Gaston County that was, that made this so prejudicial. So, the, the intersection of all of these different areas of bias is critical, um, and the, the, I think what your honor is suggesting is that there might be a cumulative effect, but I think without understanding that future issue and being shielded from that being raised, there is, a, there, there is an effect there. And Davis says, um, the witness was in effect asserting under protection of the trial court's ruling a right to give a questionably truthful answer to a cross-examiner pursuing a relevant line of inquiry. It is doubtful whether the bold no answer would have been given by Green absent a belief he was shielded from traditional cross-examination. So the witness knows that they're protected from this information coming out. The witness's statements are affected as a result, and the jury's understanding. And I will point out as well that the state, in their closing, said, 
what benefit does he get? What interest does he have for identifying the wrong person? Decades in prison is what he gets. He gets decades not in prison for his substantial assistance and cooperation in this case. What kind of, what kind of punishment was he facing? Like what, what length of sentence and how much fine? Um, so it was a mandatory minimum of 70 months. There were five counts. Theoretically, they could have been consolidated. Five, five counts of trafficking heroin? Yes. But it was up to 350 months, but a minimum of 70 months. That was in Gaston? That's the Gaston County. What did he face in Mecklenburg? Uh, they never charged him, so it's hard to tell. But most trafficking charges come along in series of three to five counts because inherently in trafficking, you're trafficking in multiple ways, possession, sale, um, um, transportation. And so he likely would have faced, could have faced several counts of trafficking in. Um, would that have been 70 months as well? It, so it, depending on the weight. And I'm not clear. It's clearly a trafficking weight, but I don't know off the top of my head if it was a level one trafficking or a level two, what level. So did the jury basically hear that he, he escaped 70 months, but they should have heard that he would have most likely escaped 140 months? Is that what we're talking about? I'm just. I, I think it's a little different than saying he escaped 140 months. It's he got immunity for what he was participating in that day and is hoping to appease the state and, and ultimately the judge in Gaston County and get a substantial benefit down there. The, the sort of future implication is a little different than the past implication and a little stronger. Um, knowing that you might go to prison, I think is so You think it's a stronger case. I mean, so, so if Gaston had already made an offer, you cooperate and we will, and, and we will drop these charges. You don't think that's strong, and, and the jury's not allowed to hear that. That clearly is error. But yes. you think it's stronger that he hadn't been offered the deal yet? Because he still has to cooperate. If he doesn't testify, then he loses the deal. So if he has a deal in hand, I would think that would give him more of an incentive than just the hope that he's got to still go earn it by go testifying than just hope that he might get a deal. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's not an incentive, but I don't see how that's a stronger incentive. I think desperate people do desperate things. And I think when you are facing possible decades in prison, and you have a state that is so invested in the outcome of this trial that they have chased you down, they've put an ankle monitor on you, and they've already forgiven your past trafficking, that you do what you need to do to save yourself those decades in prison. And the threat of those decades is a huge incentive. So, so wait, I, I'm not sure I've understood that you, if, whether you answered my question. How much time was he facing uh, on the Gaston County cases, and, and, and how big of a fine? So he was facing a, um, 350 months, which is 70 times five. 70 times five, which is 350 months. Trying to do the math on the years, but it's decades. Um, and then 50,000 per. So um, seven, seven times five again is 350 thousand dollars. Okay. And then do you do you remember what kind of benefit he ended up? actually getting? Absolutely. So he received a suspended sentence, which is only allowable with substantial assistance. He did not serve any time in jail, and his suspended sentence was only 23 to something months. So that potential sentence got reduced. So even if he screws up on probation, he does not serve the 70 months. And what kind of fine did he get? Um, it was minimal, I think under $1,000. Okay. Even if he didn't have any type of agreement with the state in Gaston County and taking this to trial? Um, would Ms. Robinson have been <coughs> entitled to substantial assistance at sentencing, even upon conviction, regardless of 
whether the, the state acquiesced to any type of plea agreement, or does the substantial assistance factor only come in after a plea of guilty? So the substantial assistance can be done over the objection of the state, theoretically. That's not what happened here, but it can be done without, I mean, they can object to it and the judge can still give it. That is something that is entirely up to the judge. But it, it's there at sentencing regardless of going to trial or entering a plea, correct? Yes, that is available to them in either, either direction. Um, if there are no further questions. If you want to take two minutes, sure. then you'll eat into your, if you want, you can have two more because they were asking quite. If you want two minutes and then you'll eat into your five minutes, you can, okay. you can take it if you want it. Um, but you don't have to. I mean, uh, given the interplay between the different sources of bias, the extensive control and reward the state had already shown, uh, it makes it plain that Jamal was influenced to believe that the state could and would control his Gaston charges and that the judge could and would provide substantial assistance. I will reserve the remainder of my time for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do you still have five minutes. We'll hear from the state. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Thank you, and may it please the Court. Zachary Dunn here on behalf of the state in this matter. <clears throat> As this Court knows, this case is before the Court on both of the defendant's direct appeals and pursuant to their identical motions for appropriate relief. At a high level of abstraction, the main issue uh, animating both is whether the defense should have been permitted to ask the state's witness, Mr. Robinson, about his then-pending out-of-county drug charges. Uh, though both the direct appeal and the NARs concern the same underlying issue, the questions before the court are distinct and should dictate how the court treats them. On direct appeal, the court must, must decide whether the trial court abused its discretion in not allowing the testimony, and the court's review is limited under uh, Appellate Rule 9A to the record on appeal. Pursuant to the MAR, of course, the questions and standard of review are different. It's whether, given the exhibits contained in the MAR, this court can conclusively determine whether or not uh, the state elicited false testimony. Um, as to the first issue, um, I'd like to start with the direct appeal, um, which has gotten most of the questions uh, from this court uh, thus far, and that's whether the court abused, it, abused its discretion in excluding the cross-examination. Now, Bowman uh, and Jones' uh, 1991 case from our Supreme Court sets out the general rule, which has been discussed some here today, which is that, quote, a defendant may not cross-examine a witness regarding pending charges, end quote. But there is a narrow exception, which is compelled by the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause um, when the defendant seeks to show bias or undue influence. And there's two basic ways where this narrow exception can apply. The first, of course, is where the witness faces pending charges in the same jurisdiction, which is not what we have here. And the second is where the witness faces pending charges in a separate jurisdiction than the one he testifies in. And in that case, the defendant must uh, provide supporting documentation of a discussion between the two district attorney's offices to demonstrate that the witness's testimony is biased. Let me ask you this. Our standard view is it abuse of discretion or is it harmless beyond a reasonable doubt? Did they make a is this a constitutional challenge? I think that the standard if we find if we find error, I mean, if we were to find error, what's our right? I think the standard of review is abuse of discretion. If you look at Bowman, it, it sets out abuse of discretion, and at the end, it found an abuse of discretion. So I don't think there's any way around that. Um, you know, I think that there, if if there 
is error found, then the court also must determine whether or not it was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. So I think both are really in play here. Um, but, but to Judge Murphy's question, it really it comes down to does must mean must. Uh, the Supreme Court clearly said that in order to inquire about pending charges, uh, that the defendant must provide supporting documentation of a discussion. And um, as this court knows, the trial court was well aware of Bowman, read extensively from it, conducted an evidentiary hearing which comprised three witnesses, including Mr. Robinson and two Charlotte Mecklenburg police officers. Uh, and, and, and the prosecutor himself said that he had not contacted Gaston County and represented that his office had, quote, unquote, done nothing uh, to benefit Mr. Robinson. But is it a difference that makes a difference that the DA doesn't really have a role in a substantial assistance um, claim? You know, it's really up to the, to the trial court judge. Well, I think that that makes it even even less of, of an instance in which the state could control the witness. I mean, if the state has no ability to even create a deal where they're able to um, say, yes, you have definitely um, given substantial assistance to the state, and so you're going to avoid that mandatory uh, minimum. I mean, here, the, the plea deal, as we know from the MAR documents, explicitly left sentencing in the discretion of that Gaston County judge. Uh, and so, and the Gaston County judge was the one who decided whether or not there was substantial assistance in the case. But I... I I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry? I didn't mean to cut you off. Go, go ahead and finish. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to circle uh, back to Bowman and say that really it starts and ends with, on direct appeal, uh, with Bowman's holding that there must be some discussion between the two district attorney's offices. And here, even the MAR documents uh, show that there was none until well after this trial had concluded. And looking at, at Bowman, just so, you know, trying to compare apples, see if it's apples to apples or apples to oranges, 442 is describing the, the charges that the witness had in Guilford County. This trial was, had been taking place in, in Forsyth County. But that does include trafficking in methamphetamine as well, and one count of trafficking in marijuana. At the time of the Bowman trial, those also were subject to substantial assistance, correct? They were, yes, Your Honor, if I might. Um, but, and I want to des uh, describe how the result in this case should be different from the result in Bowman, because, of course, uh, as the discussion has shown, Bowman actually received a new trial. Uh, in that one, the prosecutor responsible for the witness's drug charges was in communication with the prosecutor responsible for Bowman's murder trial. So that fit into the second exception, that there was some documentation of a discussion between the two district attorney's offices. Here, and, and I believe, uh, I'm sorry and don't hold me to it, but I believe that came about through a public records request that was done before the trial had actually uh, uh, started and made it into the trial record in Bowman. And here, uh, the public records request, which is the documents attached to the motion for appropriate relief, actually show that there was no communication. And so uh, this... Well, that was suggestive of that. I'm sorry? That was su suggestive of that. Fairly suggestive of, of what? I'm sorry. Uh, that there was no <laughs> communication. There's no positive evidence in those records that there was a communication. That's correct. And, and in fact, there are statements from both the Gaston County DA's office and the Mecklenburg County DA's office that there was absolutely no communication, that they specifically did not discuss that. 
with Mr. Robinson. There are witnesses. Who were the witnesses? I'm just. Who were the witnesses that said there weren't the discussion? These were Mecklenburg people. Uh, so at the trial of these two defendants, uh, the uh, Mecklenburg County DA said that they had done nothing and that they had not discussed uh, any any deal with Mr. Robinson. And then in the email, which is attached wait, the, to the motion wait, for the appropriate Mecklenburg relief. people said they didn't discuss any deal with, the, with Mr. Robinson? I'm sorry. Who didn't say that one more time? What, you said the Mecklenburg people said they hadn't discussed a deal. He had a deal. I thought he had a deal in Mecklenburg County. So at the, and I'm sorry if I'm not being clear, at the trial of these two defendants, the Mecklenburg County DA, uh, ADA, I guess, said that they had not discussed any plea deal with Mr. Robinson. And then in the Gaston County case, which is Mr. Robinson's case, um, there was uh, some emails from between Mr. Robinson's attorney and the Mecklenburg County ADA. Uh, and in those emails, I believe it's on uh, petition appendix page 15, uh, it specifically says that we did not discuss any type of deal, any type of uh, sentence reduction, anything with Mr. Robinson, and that they took no position on his on his sentencing in Gaston County. But did, did any, did, did a Gaston County DA get, was there any testimony from any Gaston County? I mean, and maybe I'm, I'm ignorant on this. What, what role does a Mecklenburg DA have to do with charges in Gaston County? I think that's the point. They don't. They don't. <laughs> so what, so how does that witness that, that was offered at trial how is that even relevant? I mean, that, if, if I'm sitting there, I, I, don't, I still don't know if there was a deal between Mr. Robinson and Gaston County except out of Mr. Robinson's mouth because why would – I mean, it's possible the Mecklenburg people wouldn't know about it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know if, if, if Robinson went to go talk to the people in Gaston County and said, hey, if I go do this thing in Mecklenburg County, will you cut me a break? I mean, because the Mecklenburg people might not know about it. I'm just wondering, was, did, did anybody from – is there any evidence that nobody in Gaston County uh, said that, no, we never had any discussions with them? There is, and the only evidence of that comes from the documents attached to the motion for appropriate relief. There's the transcript from Mr. Robinson's plea hearing, and in that uh, plea hearing transcript, the Gaston County DA uh, made a representation to the court in open court that they had had no discussion with Mecklenburg County, had not discussed the case with them, uh, except for the day before sentencing, which was months after this trial had ended, Your Honor. Um, but I think just to circle back under, yeah. you know, I'm sorry? No, it's okay. Oh, under 9A, uh, the question on direct appeal is limited to what was known by the trial court judge, what was in front of the trial court judge at the time, uh, I believe it is, that he made that ruling. Uh, and there was simply no evidence of substantial assistance. There was no evidence of a deal. Uh, there was nothing that the defendants were able to produce during their, um, during their evidentiary hearing uh, to provide supporting documentation of a discussion between the two district attorney's offices. So I think the question on direct appeal starts and ends right there, Your Honors. I would like to talk for a minute if what I What if might. Mr. Robinson had talked directly to Gaston County? Would that be relevant? Or are you, does the Supreme Court case says it must show that discussions between the DA offices that's correct, yeah. So you would say that if Mr. Robinson had a direct discussion with Gaston County, they said, yes, if you go testify in Mecklenburg County and do this, we will reduce your charges. That would not be relevant to show bias? That would not be allowed? I think it's a much harder case and, of course, not the one we have here. But to but answer it. The Supreme is, Court says must. So you're saying when they say must, you're saying what they mean by that is that 
that's — it has to be um, — I think so, because under Bowman's really? rationale — Really? So you think if, 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 if a defendant has got a, an offer in another county and had direct communications, if they, if they cooperate in this county, I, as a criminal defendant, can't ask that witness about that? I don't have — you're saying that I can't ask them to, to show bias? I think before that uh, the defendant would be able to do that, that they would have to show that the state is, uh, as, it, as the court said in uh, Privat, that there was some strong weapon to control the witness. And we're talking about two different Well, you're decisions. saying under the Supreme Court, we have to read that case and say that they have to show that there was actual discussion between Mecklenburg County and Gaston. Are yes. you saying that's a definite thing? So if there was no discussion between the people, with the, the, with the witness talked directly to Gaston County, that take, that, you're saying the Supreme Court opinion says that that, that cannot be used then? It, it cannot be used because the general rule is that uh, any pending charges are not available uh, for testimony on cross-examination, and there must be some showing. Even if there's a deal? What if Gaston County made a deal separately from the — never talked to — my question is, what if Gaston had made a separate deal with this defendant? If you go cooperate in Mecklenburg County, we'll drop your charges. They never talked directly to the Mecklenburg people. They just — made this deal on the side, that would take us outside the Supreme Court must thing. But wouldn't that be relevant to show bias? I don't think so, because it, it would not show bias if a defend, if a witness said, if a witness is going to get a good deal in Gaston County if they testify in Mecklenburg County. That's, that doesn't, that's not relevant? No, because... Then why is it relevant in Mecklenburg County? If, if, if this, this witness was getting a deal in Mecklenburg County, why is that relevant? Because in, if it was in Mecklenburg County, then the same prosecutor would be making the decision on uh, giving the deal to the witness and prosecuting the murder case. Um, and it's, it, it goes back to that, that one saying of having a strong weapon to control the witness. In, in that situation that Your Honor posits, the prosecutor, the one who is prosecuting these two defendants, had a weapon, that, that plea deal, uh, to control the witness. If you don't testify, then you don't get this, don't, don't get this plea deal. However, if there was a side deal between Gaston County and the defendant with absolutely no intervention by, Gas by Mecklenburg County, then Mecklenburg County DA, who is the, the ephemeral state uh, in, in that uh, situation, would, be, would not be controlling uh, Mr. Robinson. It, there, under Bowman, um, and, and under the but isn't that more towards undue influence than it is towards bias? Because bias is what's in my head sitting here as a witness and what's going to influence me giving potentially false testimony, whether that's some agreement with this prosecutor that could take me on for more charges or not is only a limited sliver of that consideration. Whereas I, I think what, what Judge Dillon's positing is you know, there's no way a rational actor as a witness isn't going to be biased by that or potentially biased to the extent the jury needs to know about it. Even if the DA prosecuting the case doesn't have a, a stick to beat him over the head with, there's still what impact does that have on the mind of the witness? And that's the whole, whole point of bias and probably the difference between bias and, and the undue influence. Right. Admittedly, that would be a much closer case, and I don't know if I have the best answer for you, uh, but to say that that's not what happened in this case. And there's well, no I understand it's not what's I'm just trying to see does must mean must, because, I mean, it, I'm trying to think, is there a situation where the Supreme Court couldn't have been thinking about? I mean, I would just have to think if the Gaston County DA said, 
listen, Mr. Robinson, if you cooperate in that Mecklenburg County case, because I know about this case and I care about justice, if you go tell the truth there, I will give you a deal here in Gaston County. Um, now, he have, he's not involved, he or she's not involved in the Mecklenburg County case, but if you said, I would think that's relevant to show bias. I mean, I think, I mean, why couldn't you ask the witness? You're getting a deal in Gaston County if you testify today. Yes, I am. I mean, why couldn't the jury hear about that? It's just a bias question. I, I think that might, you know, I'm, I'm want to give anything away as I stand here. I understand uh, that, but that would take must out of, I mean. Oh. It, it would. And, and, you know, it's a very different case than we have here. And I think, Obviously. you know, maybe this court would hold that that would show bias. Or, or at least the potential for bias, because he knows if he testifies here in Mecklenburg County, then he's getting a great deal in Gaston County. Uh, but of course, again, just circling back, that's that's almost the complete opposite of what we I understand. Um, and I would just under, and I want to mention it one more time, just under 9A, you know, all of the information that's contained in the motion for appropriate relief really isn't properly before this court as it decides the direct appeal issue, which is the confrontation. Would it be appropriate on the MAR to send it back for a hearing, or do you think it needs to even go back for a hearing? Well, we think that it does not need to go back for a hearing, but if your honors disagreed, I think, um, and it comes from um, a case from the Supreme Court, State versus Hearst, that the, the better procedure is to simply dismiss the MAR at this stage and let the Without prejudice, go ahead send and it back. refile. Because we don't have the witnesses here. We don't, I mean, we don't know everything. Right. And then the trial judge would be permitted to decide whether or not an evidentiary hearing was appropriate or not. Uh, I would like to speak to that, um, the motion for appropriate relief, just very quickly yeah, sure. if I could. Um, the question on the motion for appropriate relief is whether the documents provided in the MAR show that the Mecklenburg County prosecutors knew that Robinson's voir dire testimony was false and that they, they let him testify to that anyway. Uh, and it would be our submission that the, that the documents attached to the motion for appropriate relief fall far short of showing that and, in fact, uh, tend to show the opposite. How soon after the trial did the, the Mecklenburg trial did Robinson get his deal? Uh, it, so this trial ended... Um, 3 March 2020, I think, is when the verdicts came down. Okay. And the uh, Mr. Robinson was sentenced in 10 June 2020, so about three months, a little over three months uh, between when this trial ended, these two defendants' trial ended, and when Mr. Robinson's deal uh, was finalized and he actually pled guilty uh, in court. But there was no, uh, the phone logs uh, showed that there was no call held until the day before uh, Mr. Robinson's plea hearing. So there was no contact, at least on this issue, between the two prosecutors' offices. And the emails from Mecklenburg County, the ADA, said, quote, Mecklenburg County is, quote, taking no position regarding the disposition of Robinson's pending matters, as that has never been discussed or agreed upon. Uh, so I think, you know, in order to show that the state knew uh, that Mr. Robinson was giving false testimony, there's just nothing in these records to prove Let me that. ask you a question. What if the deal had been made the next day, but the, the, the affidavit still said, well, I didn't, we never had any discussion until five minutes after trial. Could the trial court judge in MAR just choose not to believe the DAs and just say, you know, this is so close in time that I'm just going to, infer from the fact that this is so close in time that I believe that there were discussions and therefore I'm going to grant this MAR. Is that within a trial court judge's uh, discretion to believe and disbelieve witnesses? 
Uh, yeah, I think that credibility so can they do it? Can they do it three? What if it's three months later? Is that too much in time, or is there still enough to where the trial court could the trial court judge infer if that was all that was introduced, and you don't have any of these witness testimonies, all you had was three months later he got this good deal. Is that enough from which a trial court judge could infer, if that was the only thing for the trial court judge, could the trial court judge infer that maybe there was a discussion or something going on? I think that a trial court judge sitting as an MAR court could do that. I so think then we would then, have some. Then therefore, don't we need to send this back because the trial court judge in their discretion could just disbelieve all the witnesses? Because in this sort of a directed verdict or enough to go to the jury kind of question, is there enough to where a judge could find that perhaps there were discussions. And if that's enough evidence to find there were discussions, don't we have to look in the light most favorable to the defendant well, to, to, to send it back, I guess, at least? On this motion for appropriate relief, the, the judge, this court, or the trial court judge would have to believe and think that the evidence before it was enough to prove that the Mecklenburg County DA knew that Mr. Robinson was giving false testimony, knew that he knew he was going to receive a deal from Gaston County. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I suppose a trial court judge could do, or this court can do whatever it pleases, uh, but I think we would have some very good arguments, uh, whether it's a piece of discretion or... or um, yeah, I don't, I'm, just, yeah, I'm just playing devil's advocate. What, you know, what the you scope know, review is. Not supported by evidence in the record, that, those types of arguments. At some point, I want you to talk about um, Defendant uh, Springs-Owen's uh, argument about the severing the trials. Sure. And real quick, Mr. Jim, before you, you transfer over to that, I've got one other question on my mind regarding the MAR. Um, State of the Verdicts came down 3 March uh, 2020, and um, that this plea was entered June 10th of 2020. Is there anything in the record for the MAR or otherwise that shows if Gaston County was even having Superior Court taking pleas in March through May of 2020? Whether Gaston County was? Gaston County, yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, Sorry, thank you. I'm sure that that's probably publicly available. I don't think that it's anywhere in the record, Your Honor. So theoretically, this could have been the next potential Superior Court admin date to take a plea, even it, though it was three months down the road. It is. Our submission would be, you know, as this court can't have witnesses and hear testimony, uh, that the better procedure would simply be to dismiss the MAR and allow these defendants to file a motion for appropriate relief. And if the trial court judge found that an evidentiary hearing was necessary to kind of suss out all those details, which could then be part of the record before That's this fair. court on a PWC. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd be happy to talk about Mr. Spr Mr. Springs-Owen's second issue, which is the, the motion to sever. Um, the Supreme Court held, our Supreme Court held in, in Cagle, uh, that there is a strong policy in North Carolina favoring the consolidation of cases of multiple defendants when they may be held accountable for the same criminal conduct, which is, of course, exactly what we have here. And severance is only mandated under Cagle and many other cases uh, where necessary to promote or achieve a fair determination of guilt or innocence. And, of course, the, the trial court's decision on whether or not to sever is reviewed by this court for an abuse of discretion. So that same uh, whether there was a reasoned decision um, from the trial court whether or not to to uh, sever the trial. And I'll allow, I'm sure defense counsel, uh, appellate counsel will speak to this, but my understanding is that the, the, the sole grounds that, that they're arguing is that there was overwhelming evidence as to one defendant and that prejudiced uh, Mr. Springs-Owen. That, that's, that's the basis. Not that they weren't allowed to present evidence or 
or whatever based on the fact it was coming. But, but the fact that there was this overwhelming evidence as to one uh, defendant such that the jury just believed, well, Robinson must be telling the truth about that one. So must be right. telling the truth about that. That's the theory, as I understand it. <clears throat> Um, of course, I'll let Mr. Springzone's excellent attorney speak for him, but I believe uh, what their argument was. So there was two different arguments. The, when the speedy trial, or excuse me, when the motion to sever was first filed, it was based on speedy trial grounds. It was before trial, and there was uh, uh, um, some kind of issue that Mr. Springzone's wanted to go ahead with trial, and Mr. Evans, he felt like he couldn't go to trial at the same time. So, so how much of a delay was the original there? motion? I'm sorry. How much? Okay. So that's that, okay. Go ahead. So that that's been abandoned, or that's not before. Yeah, and right. And then the the, the later when the motion was renewed uh, in open court, Mr. Springs Owens' attorney uh, attorney made a different argument, which was that um, the evidence concerning the witness intimidation and witness tampering by Mr. Evans would unfairly prejudice his yeah. client. Um, so it wasn't there was overwhelming evidence of the underlying crimes, the murder, the. Um, the robbery, those types of things, but that it just simply the fact that the um, the witness intimidation evidence would come before this jury would unfairly prejudice him. I, yeah. I believe that's what the what the argument is. Um, but what the trial court did, it made a reasoned decision to give limiting instructions, and you can see in volume twelve, page twenty four thirty two of the record or of the transcript, excuse me, right after the witness intimidation. Um, evidence came in, the trial court specifically instructed the jury that as to Mr. Owens, this evidence must play no part in your deliberation. And um, instructions to that effect were given a total of three times by the trial court. Uh, so our position is that um, given how this, uh, this motion to sever originally came up, how it was renewed, and then those limiting instructions, uh, the trial court clearly had a reasoned decision on why not to sever these trials uh, and shouldn't be overturned for an abuse of that discretion. I have a quick question. Sure. Uh, did the flyers or the recording of the phone call implicate uh, Defendant Owens in any way? I'm struggling to remember. As I stand here, I don't believe that they had anything to do with Mr. Owens. I, I believe the testimony and the evidence showed that it was Mr. Evans's uh, girlfriend or fiance or wife who had posted these posters around. Um, but we think that the limiting instructions that were given uh, were more than sufficient, were a reasoned decision not to sever these trials, especially when, when the issue came up. Uh, that late in the trial, I, I know that there was a there was a previous one at the beginning, but uh, wasn't the uh, uh, please please let me know if I'm if I'm recalling this correctly. Wasn't the um, additional security measure merely uh, um, the uh, metal detector and the detectives with with wands? Uh, additional security at the courthouse itself mm -hmm. during I the trial. That, I believe that that's correct. Yes, Your Honor, I yeah. think that's right. Mr. Dunn, this is going to sound like, like a silly question, but, but I just want to hear your thoughts on it. What is the basis for the relevancy at all for the witness intimidation evidence to come in to this trial, which is trying to determine um, if these gentlemen committed this, this crime? Well, I think uh, Mr. Evans was charged with witness intimidation. So <coughs> the the prosecutor was trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that had occurred. So that, as to Mr. Evans, that's why the testimony came in. 
I, I believe that that's correct. Uh, again, my experienced colleagues here uh, to my right will, will correct me if that's wrong, but uh, I, be I believe that that was a charge and that's why that, that, that information came in. And there was no pretrial motion then to sever the trial of that charge that had directly nothing to do with what occurred on the, the date of the murder. Um, there was no pretrial motion to sever on that basis as, you know, correct having nothing to do with what we're, we're dealing with and, and what's at issue here. I believe that's right. To the best of my recollection, the only pretrial motion to sever was based on a speedy trial issue. Yes, did, Your Honor. Did Defendant Owens object to the additional security measures? Your Honor, as I stand here, I'm, I'm not quite sure if, uh, if he did or not. I, I cannot remember that from the record. I'm, I apologize. Um, Unless there are any further questions on, on any of the issues, I'd just like to take a minute to wrap up. Sure, go ahead. Um, the trial court appropriately followed the general rule and did not allow the defense to ask Mr. Robinson about his pending out-of-county charges. The defense was unable to show any discussion between the district attorney's offices to fit the exceptions outlined in Bowman. Further, and for the reasons discussed, the MAR should be denied or, in the alternative, dismissed without prejudice uh, for these defendants to, to file, refile them in the Superior Court. And on the remaining issues, the state urges the court to find no error and affirm for the reasons outlined in the brief. Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, let me ask one more question, sorry. Procedurally, if, if we do choose to dismiss for them to refile in, in the trial court, do we have authority at all to comment on whether we think it's entitled to it needs an evidentiary hearing along with that that dismissal? Um, I don't. Or would we have to wait for a, a PwC of the MAR and then send it back down and, and mm -hmm. spend another year sitting around with it? All right. I, I, I can't think of any uh, any case law off the top of my head which speaks to that issue. I think if this court thought it should dismiss the MAR. It probably wouldn't say anything about the merits of the MAR at all or whether an evidentiary hearing should be held. But, you know, if there's a summary denial without an evidentiary hearing and there was a PWC, this court could, of course, quickly send it down uh, for an evidentiary hearing if, it, if the petition panel thought that that was, that was necessary. Thank you, Mr. Dunn. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. So five minutes to go ahead. Thank you. I want to start by focusing on um, this the this shared issue here. Um, the problem with the state's analysis of Bowman and its applicability is that they are very narrowly focused on state-induced bias. Was there state action that created bias? That's not the question. And because it's not the question, it's why we are also not tied to that must language of Bowman. The question is, is this witness, does this witness have a potential source of bias that could influence their testimony? It does not have to come from words from a DA. It does not have to come from promises being made. It can come from other sources, and our job here is to look at the facts and circumstances and determine if there are aspects of bias 
in the fact of these charges in Gaston County. So is it, if, if there's a so my question is then so if a witness if there's pending charges anywhere in the world against mm -hmm. a witness that's fair game because that could show bias. Not necessarily. And I think what Bowman speaks to in talking about there being discussion between the counties is when you have different counties and different district attorneys, there needs to be something connective in order to show that that witness would believe that they might get a benefit from okay. the state. And that's, that is the state-focused inquiry. One of the things that we're talking about is how substantial assistance takes us entirely out of a state-focused inquiry. So if he had a charge in Nebraska, whatever, it would be unreasonable to think that he would he, he would think that he could ever benefit from from testifying in Mecklenburg County that he'd get some relief in his Nebraska charge. But you're saying because of the nature of the charge, not that there was state action, but this is just something that anybody reasonably would, would assume that he could be biased because these charges are so connected. That's, that's your argument. Yes. I got you. Okay. Yes. Is that between the fact that the county shared the crime, um, the fact that he had previously received immunity, um, that they were controlling his actions, and the additional fact that takes us entirely out of the hope of a state deal, um, that substantial assistance. And so what case do you think helps you on that argument? It's not a state action. So what's the, what's, what's So I think that we see this in the body of case law, starting with Davis, looking at Privet, looking at Murrell, um, and the way that they analyze cases. Um, I think it's very clear that we have to focus on what a jury could believe about his bias. Um, and so there has to be a deeper inquiry than simply looking at this one line of Bowman that says, must show discussion. There has to be a broader understanding of the potential sources of bias than just a state promise um, or, or a, you know, a belief in state promise. There's more to it than that. So what's the, what's the trial court judge's, I guess, discretion in making that determination? Because I think as a trial court judge, Clearly, the Nebraska charge wouldn't have anything to do with it, so I would say clearly it's okay for the judge to say you can't ask about the Nebraska charge. Is there a gray area where the judge has discretion? Um, and, and even if that's the case, why does this, I mean, what role does the judge have here? What, what's the judge's duty when faced with this, this other charge to determine? Because if the witness may say, um, and I can't remember what, what Robinson said, Mr. Robinson said here, but oh, I, um, he, did he, what did he say about this? What did he say about the Gaston County charge? He said he was aware of substantial assistance, that he had not been promised any relief, and he didn't expect any relief. Though I will point out that the cases say that it's up to the jury to decide whether or not they believe that. They need to hear it and decide whether or not they believe it as the assessment. Well, he could say that about a Nebraska charge, and I think the judge would not be committing error by saying, I don't need the jury to hear that because I, I don't think that should come in at all. Um, but so what point is the judge making an error, I guess, and not letting a jury to make that determination. So the 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 judge here, um, when he was discussing his ruling, really analyzed Bowman under Davis pretty well in saying that that Bowman is not necessitating that discussion; that it's a case by case inquiry. But he abused his discretion in not allowing this in. It is hard to think about the facts of this case and think that Jamal Robinson sat in that chair and did not believe he was going to get some benefit in Gaston County from what he was about to do. I mean, that's kind of ludicrous. Um, substantial assistance is uh, created to incentivize people to cooperate with the state. There's a recognition that some people are hesitant to do so. And this creation of a personal incentive 
through the statutory authority that the judge has to waive decades in prison is created for this purpose. But do you need to create an incentive when a person is a victim? Uh, you did here. I mean, he had to be put under a material witness order. So um, not everybody wants to cooperate in the drug world, in the drug trade world, which is why we have substantial assistance. And so, um, you know, he was forced to testify, but he also knew he would get the benefit of that testimony. And that was something that the jury was deprived from hearing and in assessing his credibility. And his credibility is the entire case. So... Spend a minute to wrap up if you want to. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you, let, let me ask one question just before you, you do that. Let's assume for a minute that in a vacuum, I agree with your argument that um, the substantial assistance issue pulls us out of this must language of Bowman. How do we reconcile the fact that in Bowman the charges did involve trafficking and, and assume that the Supreme Court was just asleep at the wheel, it wasn't argued, and they didn't bring it up? I mean, they lay out the charges, so that's part of the opinion as well. So I, I, I'm trying to, I probably assume I, I can reconcile the first issue. How do I, I get past the fact that there was substantial assistance charges in, in Bowman? So you, you're absolutely right, Judge, that it involved trafficking charges. However, it also involves some other charges. Um, but I would say that the Supreme Court didn't have to get there because they found that there was communication between the offices and that was sufficient. So I don't think that the Supreme Court in any way, shape, or form is saying that substantial assistance is not something that could create this bias. I think they just didn't get there because they didn't need to. So that, they didn't have to go that far in the inquiry. Thank you. The body of case law makes it clear that uncovering bias through cross-examination is a vital tool to get to the truth in a case and a part of the process that both the criminal defendant and the jury has a right to. For this case, Jamal Robinson served as the beginning, middle, and end. But for Jamal, the jury heard about his past and present sources of bias, but not his future. His very serious trafficking charges in Gaston County. Jamal had every reason to believe and expect concessions from the state and or the judge in Gaston if he helped put James Evans and Marquez Springs Owens in prison for life. The trial court abused its discretion in preventing defense counsel from questioning Jamal about these charges, and a new trial is required. I just have one question. Yes. <laughs> Did defense counsel for Owens preserve you know, this argument regarding the, the additional security measures and all, that whole argument? Was that preserved at trial? So there was never an issue raised as to that. There was an inquiry by the judge done, but that's not an independent argument that I've made on appeal. What I have alleged is that the additional security was a part of what needed to be considered in whether or not to sever the cases um, based off of the fact that that stemmed directly from uh, this, um, this issue that occurred because of Mr. Evans only. So it's not its own independent issue. All right. Thank you. Thank you for your Thank arguments. You. Appreciate it. Um, what do y'all, okay? You want to just roll on? Was the other defendant going to get you? Huh? Uh, did you want to rebut? I'm sorry. Yeah, he did you, you want? Yeah, you can't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. We'll give you a minute. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, 
I appreciate the court's indulgence. Um, I just wanted to speak real quick to Judge Murphy had a preservation question um, a while back about the substantial assistance argument. And there is a uh, page 1336 of the record. Uh, the, clearly, they object on constitutional grounds, confrontation clause grounds. But uh, trial counsel for uh, Mr. Evans says, I wish I had the opportunity to cross-examine about the pending charges, quote, to show his understanding, Jamal's understanding, that there is bias in favor of him. And as long as he keeps doing what he's doing, and the more of it he does, the less likely he is to spend the rest of his life in prison. That speaks directly to substantial assistance. The more he does, the more cooperation testimony he provides, the less likely he is to spend his time in prison. So I think that is the issue with respect to substantial assistance that we have fleshed out on appeal. Um, and it turns out the trial counsel was onto something. Not only did he not spend decades in prison, it turns out he didn't spend a day in prison. And the jury should have heard that. The trial court abused its discretion. If he went to prison, would he have potentially been serving in the same uh, institution as the um, gentleman who attacked him? I think that would be up to the Department of Corrections to determine that. And but is it a possibility? I don't know, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. What, one last thing from, from me, I hope. Uh, this transcript site 1336 that you mentioned, was that before or after Mr. Robinson had testified that he understood what um, substantial assistance was. I can't was. remember exactly, to be honest. I know it's during this hearing. Uh, I can't, it may have been counsel's arguments after the testimony during the voir dire, but I, I don't remember exactly when that was made. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for your arguments. We'll take it under advisement.